This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, A Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take firsthand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, A Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, non-compliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, order, badge, throwdown weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists, and anyone with an open mind, on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence, and of police. Police, a field guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the latest installment in our ongoing series on the left and electoral politics. And today, we're talking about the Democratic Socialists of America's new electoral strategy. DSA has almost overnight become a serious force on an American socialist left that has for decades lacked much in the way of serious forces. One of the major reasons, of course, that the organization's membership roles blew up was because of Bernie Sanders's historic 2016 run for president, which not only electrified huge swaths of the country— but reminded the radical left that the point is to win power and to govern, and that, after years on the margins, we could do so. And that's in part because many Americans were no longer afraid of the S-word, socialism. Yet there is still, for many good reasons, a lot of skepticism about electoral politics in general, and the Democratic Party very much in particular, inside DSA and across the socialist left. That is the needle that the new DSA electoral strategy tries to thread. My guests today are Renee Parody and Michael Knukin. Renee is a civil rights and criminal defense lawyer who lives in Brooklyn. She has frequently worked for electoral campaigns, including, most recently, as the National Voter Protection Director for Bernie 2016. Michael is a writer, researcher, and activist in New York. Both Michael and Renee are members of DSA's National Electoral Committee and sit on New York City DSA's Brooklyn Electoral Working Group. You should also follow Michael Kanukin on Facebook, where he has a lively and incisive presence. We have a lot more episodes coming up on radical approaches to the ballot box, with Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Shockway Antar Lumumba, Jacobin editor Seth Ackerman, and Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel. We also have a standing invitation out there to Bernie Sanders, a.k.a. the most popular politician in America. Uh, 
One day, just maybe, it will be accepted. Before we get rolling, our spring fundraising drive is going strong at patreon.com slash the dig. If you've been meaning to donate but haven't done so yet, now is a better time than ever. All donors over $5 get my new weekly newsletter, which includes advice from me and from my guests on readings that go deeper into what we've discussed on the show, and more. $10 gets you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, published by Verso. $20 or more gets you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other stellar authors. So please, if you haven't already, take a minute to warm my heart and ensure the long-term viability of the show at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. I should also mention that this interview with Michael and Renee was recorded before the Working Families Party in New York decided to endorse Cynthia Nixon against Governor Cuomo and before Governor Cuomo's forces responded by pulling these major unions out of the Working Families Party and whatnot. And so we don't get into that in this interview. Thank you. And here's Renee Parody and Michael Kanukin. Michael Kanukin and Renee Parody, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Not not welcome back because there's there's no lost episode and this is the very <laughs> first time the three of us have ever spoken. <laughs> um and anyhow, let's start with why many socialists are highly skeptical of electoral politics before we get into your case for why the left should engage with them. Why, for good reasons and for bad reasons, are so many socialists so critical? I think there are a number of concerns that socialists have about about electoral politics and electoral strategies. Uh, Maybe the biggest of them being that electoral politics can elevate uh, one, a single person, the elected official, above uh, the movement that is pressing for change. Uh, so electoral politics tends towards a kind of hero worship or or uh, placing of a, a, an individual over the movement. That's a concern. Another concern is that electoral politics has a certain rhythm to it where you uh, try to get someone in office, there's a date when that either happens or doesn't happen, and then you go home, your volunteer base goes home, the media attention turns away, and it's seen as uh, sort of the the end of public pressure and the moment when the movement heads into the back room. And as socialists, we don't understand politics that way as the sort of thing that only happens in no, in a November every four years. We see it as a continuous process of building power. And whereby uh, and whereby everything is either decided in your favor uh, and thus everything turns out awesomely or is decided against you and thus everything turns out horribly. Yeah, I think I think that that you're getting at uh, a thing which which I've really 
recently noticed is that people see issue camp like I think a lot of socialists see issue campaigns as more pure because there's going to be nobody who sort of compromises um, the issue, right? Like it's you have this one vision and you're going to enact this vision through public agitation and that's going to be the thing that carries you through. And I think it's um, really attractive to people, uh, but I think it, it really underplays the extent to which um, issue campaigns are necessarily going to be uh, compromised when they get into the realm of public policy, that um, you're not going to win right now through you know people pouring into the streets. You're going to have coalition partners. You're going to eventually have to talk to the you know dreaded politicians. You're going to have to, if you actually want to make a change, um, enact that change through a process that's going to be compromised. And I think with politicians, the compromise is sort of on the front end, right? You see this person with all their warts. And I think people, you know, people become socialists not because they really believe in um, like practical technocratic solutions. They become socialists because they're overwhelmed by uh, really um, uh you know, sort of beautiful, pure vision of the future. So I think that that can tend to play into um, a, uh, a a want for a really pure political action. And I frankly don't think that exists, but I think that's what animates a lot of it. In other words, that there's really not that much politics that isn't in some way also electoral politics. Or that there's no politics that, that isn't compromised by the fact of trying to enact something within our our, our fallen world. <laughs> right. I think what I think uh, where I really agree with Renee here is that um, the there are very good criticisms of electoral politics on the left, but I think there are also criticisms that uh, blame electoral politics for features of politics in general. Um, for instance, uh, the need to hold together coalitions that are not um, not necessarily ideologically linked beyond the issue they're brought together with, um, the need to, at some level, compromise with opponents. Um, these are these are issues that come up whether you're doing electoral politics or a protest campaign around a demand, um, or even uh, sort of organizing-oriented campaign. Um, to organize tenants or or employees, um, there there's a tendency to see electoral politics as sort of the domain of the deal of negotiation. Politics is always negotiated of the dirty deal. <laughs> uh, you know, and and I think there's also an aspect where electoral politics in the United States at this moment is always going to be something that requires the raising of a great deal, great number of donations a great amount of money. And I think people are right to say, look, um, someone who's able to raise the amount of money that it takes to um, win elected office is very often going to be captured by moneyed interests. Um, you know, and there are ways uh, that that gets ameliorated through public financing, through small donor bases, through all these kinds of things. But there is, you know, a real structural reason why um, getting involved in electoral politics is always going to put you in in a position where you are needing to sort of raise money, um, a lot of it, very quickly, often for people who are interested in things that are not necessarily uh, fully automated gay space communism. I'll add to the list that people are, are rightfully skeptical of electoral politics, which is that 
politicians often sell out their supporters. They they squeeze them for their uh, the legitimacy that their endorsement provides and the labor that their volunteer hours provide, and then don't do what they are expected to. I think that's right. I think I think Renee and I as uh, people within the American socialist movement who are more electorally inclined, we spend so much time arguing with very skeptical socialists who are very skeptical of electoral politics that uh, we come very well armed with some counter arguments. But, you know, uh, there's a reason that we're in a grassroots uh, socialist organization that works very hard to do many things besides electoral politics. We also don't see um, see electoral as sort of the be-all and end-all political strategy. Uh, so there's a sense in which, uh, although we may be on the more electorally oriented side of our organization and of the, of the American far left, we're also much more sympathetic to these concerns and criticisms than I think many American liberals who really do see politics as largely a matter of getting the right people in office. Yeah, the debate within DSA is taking place within a framework that is significantly to the left of the the median debate over electoral politics amongst progressives more generally. Mm-hmm. This is a good point to uh, pivot to what the show is about now that we've given a very fair airing to all of the very reasonable critiques of electoral politics from the left. Uh, I want to hear about your case for all of that notwithstanding why electoral politics are still extremely important. One one obvious one is in terms of governing, which since we're not anarchists, is what socialists ultimately want to do is be in charge of the government. Um, and that requires electoral politics in a electoral democracy. Um, but then also also movement building. Uh, I- explain your argument and also the document within which your argument is contained, which is the DSA electoral strategy. So I think that there are a number of arguments for electoral. Um, as you said, you know, if you actually want to make changes, you need to convince elected officials. And one good way to do that is to elect some of your own. Uh, I think electoral is also good for um, base building in the sense of it can bring people in a community into the organization. It's a way to very visibly show up for a particular community, all of the things that an issue campaign would do in terms of showing solidarity with particular communities, getting more invested in the neighborhoods we live in, particularly in New York, where most of our members tend to be uh, white and um, if not um, middle class by by dint of cultural capital, moving into neighborhoods uh, which are predominantly people of color or or working class communities. it's It's, I think, a good way to connect on the ground with you know, voters who are necessarily people within those communities. I think it also is a very electoral uh, campaigns are very good training and how to run any kind of campaign because they come with built in deadlines, built in um, uh, peaks, valleys, you know, ways to sort of think about how do you structure a campaign? How do you get people to come do the work? How do you empower people to become leaders within the organization? Um, How do you uh, develop a volunteer base? How do you create community within it? All of those things, um, uh, I think, can be quite useful. And then 
when, you know, as, as Michael said, we're in DSA because we don't see Electro as the end-all and be-all, and Electro can go hand-in-hand hand with other um, campaigns or issues, right? So um, housing is, you know, uh, a focus of, of mo a huge amount of uh, our work in New York, both within Electoral and outside of Electoral, because it's such a, a key issue within the city for working class people. So we can amplify the work of our housing working group and, and work in tandem with them to uh, work on those issues. Echoing what Renee said on a couple of points, um, I think that uh, there's a perception that like leftists going to people and asking for their vote is a sort of presumptuous ask uh, that uh, that like people might validly wonder where we came from and who are we to govern. Um, and I think that's a fair question, except that uh, we're, uh, we're engaged and our members are engaged in struggles within these communities around a whole range of issues. And uh, and we see electoral as one tactic within sort of a broader strategy of fighting for the, the city that we all live in and share the fate of. I think a great example of that is um, the Jabari Brisport campaign that DSA helped support within Brooklyn in 2017, which was a city council campaign that emerged very directly out of a big housing fight. So there was uh, the mayor wanted to sell off some public land to private developers to build condos on and DSA was very very deeply involved in the fight against that and uh out of that fight there emerged this fantastic uh black candidate from the community Jabari Brisport uh who wanted to run a campaign sort of based up around that issue against the incumbent city council candidate or city councilor um, and that's a, I, I feel a great example of how issue campaigns and electoral can be just two sides of the same coin, can flow directly into each other. Um, the other thing I want to really echo, uh, but be meaner about maybe what Renee said. <laughs> is, um, as a, I, I think that a wonderful thing about doing electoral work on the left is that it really forces you to face up to your power and whether you have the power to win. I think it's very easy for a lot, uh, an issue campaign or many other campaigns that the left, um, that the left engages in to sort of wander through a series of protests and pressures and actions and sort of like peter out eventually without a really clear decision as to were we strong enough to win this? Was this a good strategy? Yes or no? Um, I think that uh, in, in sharp contrast, for instance, when you have a union organizing campaign, you organize and organize and then you either win the vote and then win the contract or you don't. You're really confronted with the limits of your power. And I think that really pushes people to extend those limits and builds capacity. And I think electoral is the same way. It's, it, there's a way that having a really clear timeline and a really clear sense of what it means to win and what it means to lose uh, really pushes people and builds capacity and builds organizers. And those organizers do take their that skill and that perspective and that hunger for a win into all kinds of other activism that the organization does. Well, Michael, uh, but that's not true. If you lose, you can always blame Russian interference. Mm. 
That's a fantastic point. And let me tell you, the Russian involvement in the Jabari campaign. Um, <laughs> um, but before, uh, I, I want to talk more about that campaign and others later, but um, before we get ahead of ourselves, what is the DSA electoral strategy document? What is its state within the organization of DSA? And what does it contain? So we really wanted to um, put together a document that would um, be focused on what we think is the key thing within DSA's electoral work, which is empowering uh, locals to run campaigns that will allow them to hold the politicians that they elect uh, accountable. Um, And we were, uh, both Michael and I served on the National Electoral Committee this past year. And I think the thing that we found the most gratifying was providing locals with um, the resources, training skills, information that they needed to run campaigns um, and wanted to see uh, an, a, a national strategy that was really focused on empowering locals. Um, and I think that that uh, was important to us for sort of two reasons, which is one, a uh, real belief that um, the decentralized democratic nature of DSA is one of its strengths, um, both in an instrumental way in terms of, of getting people who are really dedicated and uh, smart and engaged and not um, in it for self-aggrandizement. And um, in a, in a non-instrumental way, um, you know, a real dedication to the ideal of, of, of democratic self, self-government. Um, and then uh, second, secondly, or but not, I mean, second in, in the sequence, but not necessarily in importance, is that um, the, the real wins that we've seen for far left candidates and and electoral movements have been primarily local that that's the the um the scale on which you can uh you know run campaigns without huge amounts of money and without um the really well organized forces of of capital coming down on you um it's a way that you can you know reach out to your neighbors and really engage them in the the political fight um you know, in those kinds of, of one-on-one conversations that build um, lasting engagement and power within a, a neighborhood, within a community. Um, and it, it's just the scale on which we think uh, the the near future of um, electoral lies, um, which is not something that's necessarily going to be accomplished by a national strategy that, you know, um, uh, where you're, you're trying to sort of uh, uh, parachute in to a particular race. And so, um, we, along with other local organizers, drafted uh, a national electoral proposal for strategy proposal for DSA that we thought um, answered those those concerns. And it was adopted by the National Political Committee um, earlier this year or late last year, I forget. Uh, and so now it's sort of the, the acting document of our National Electoral Committee and, and strategy going forward. Michael? Yeah, I really agree with Renee's presentation. And I think I want to add, just because I think this can be a little bit obscure for people with a lot, without a lot of uh, experience running elections and managing campaigns and so forth. um, There's something I think is really particular about DSA's strategy so far, which is uh, an emphasis on the organization running um, running the actual process of campaigning. 
to the extent possible, which is going to vary from place to place. But I just think sort of um, people don't, m most people don't really understand how technical and complex it is to actually run for local office. You know, you have to um, understand the legal barriers to doing it and sort of overcome them. You have to get on the ballot. You have to figure out how to raise money and again, not violate laws. And then for the, the single most important thing is you have to run, if you're a grassroots candidate, you have to run a really strong field campaign and really get volunteers out talking to neighbors at their doors about the issues. And you have to train those canvassers and you have to decide who they're going to talk to and so forth. And uh, I think a problem we see with a lot of lefty grassroots campaigns is that the process of of building that campaign structure um, is really not typically in the hands of the lefty volunteers who might support those campaigns. So they they might volunteer and go out and canvas, but the process of actually like organizing the canvas is all in the hands of either a campaign manager or a campaign consultant. Or you know someone who's not in the movement, who's who's in it for money, and who's going to hold on to that expertise and and take it elsewhere, maybe use it against the movement. And it's a power dynamic that continues once the candidate, once and if the candidate is elected into office. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right, especially because. So it's certainly a power dynamic that continues with respect to the volunteers that they uh, they are sort of replaceable, one might say. They're not as essential to the electoral coalition as they could be. It's also a problem because a lot of the expertise in terms of getting on the ballot and running an effective campaign lies in the hands of the sort of uh, party apparatus, like in, in big blue cities, the Democratic Party apparatus. Uh, whether that be actually the official party structures, which is uh, a rarer situation these days, or whether it be um, sort of the the network of consultants and campaign managers and experts who have that kind of expertise. And so that that expertise allows them to keep a, a stranglehold on electoral power in many cases. Um, so we're actually against that. Um, and our our thought is that it would be much more democratic, it would be much easier to hold candidates accountable, and it would be much easier to build a sustainable electoral left if as much of that expertise um, that's essential to running elections as possible were in the hands actually of the organization, in our cases, the DSA chapter, um, rather than in the hands of the candidate or some other unelected experts. Uh, so this both allows us to recruit people who don't have the expertise of running for office and might not never have considered it otherwise. It allows us to um, sustain the sustain our electoral power from campaign to campaign without one, worrying about um, where our campaign manager is going or anything like that. Um, and it allows us to have a much stronger capacity to hold our candidates accountable because uh, we really seriously, you know, as we develop these skills, will have the power to unseat them if they piss us off, which is the ultimate candidate accountability. Um, so we see 
um, we we see a lot of progressive electoral activity as sort of uh, creating a mass list of volunteers or maybe of grassroots donors, but actually sort of maintaining this hierarchy of expertise where there are some progressive experts around. But as socialists and democratic socialists, we don't believe in that hierarchy of expertise. We're trying to spread the expertise around as widely as possible, um, create as you know as many people who have the capacity to run campaigns uh, when and where it's needed as possible. Uh, and just sort of build an, an organization that has that capacity in a permanent way and in a democratically controlled way. Yeah, I mean, just to like, I absolutely agree with everything Michael said. And I just want to emphasize a couple of, of points from earlier, which is that, you know, I think most of us who are involved with um, DSA uh, electoral have, have done work in, with other progressive organizations and been incredibly frustrated and frustrated with it with the process for some of those reasons that we talked about at the beginning of why socialists are skeptical around politics in terms of the inability to hold people accountable and, and folks sort of betraying the movement when they get into office. And so one of the things that has made me very enthusiastic about doing electoral work with DSA is the prospect of, of not replicating those patterns by, um, by taking on this model, by saying, okay, we're going to do this in a way where um, we are we are building a movement. We're not just getting some one person elected who may or may not, um, you know, do what we want. Uh, and and so it's you know we we who do electoral and DSA, it's not that we um, haven't been burned before or don't have sympathy with the the criticisms it's specifically because we do that that we've sort of come up with this model and and think as seriously as possible about how to avoid um those things that people find rightfully frustrating about progressive electoral work there were just some shots fired by both of you there implicitly um that are explicitly fired in the electoral strategy document at groups like Move On and Democracy for America. Can you talk a little bit about why those organizations serve as cautionary tales? You know, from from the, the episode that that was not lost, but um uh you know you would you would ask us what we thought the practice of practice episode. The practice episode, what we thought of, of Indivisible. And we both sort of um were like, no, we we're fine with them. And Michael said something that I really liked, which is that we are very supportive of any group that is is emphasizing getting out in your local community and doing the work there and showing up and um and and doing actions and local control. And I think for us what what we see as being really important about all of of those aspects is that you know um the organization is democratically governed that that it's not just a set of folks in DC who are sending emails you know, exhorting you to to give money tonight to uh, to stop this one bad thing, but or worse yet, hitting you up with canvassers on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Not that canvassing admitted, all canvassing is bad, but the like the Planned Parenthood Greenpeace style. Ugh. Oh yeah, I mean the the people who aren't actually even working for those groups, but um, are are being uh, with, like, mega exploited. <laughs> yeah, no, I I feel so bad for those kids, and like uh, occasionally when I I worked in reproductive rights, I'd be hit. We'd be hit up for to support Planned Parenthood while I was walking with an actual employee of Planned Parenthood. Um, <laughs> and it's like we can spare a minute in theory, but in practice, we're just gonna go get lunch. <laughs> um, so yeah, so like anybody where you're where the the emphasis is on 
creating a grassroots community of folks who are empowered to do what makes sense within their community that's you know um, encouraging people to get out and do local politics um, you know in addition to worrying about national stuff that's not just about um, owning the list in DC and um, you know parachuting in uh, for particular issues I think we have a lot of respect for um, and look you know I think it's super hard to to build these kinds of communities particularly around a particular election like I think that the one of the critic crit, criticisms we didn't mention of, of electoral work that I think is really important is you know that that when you have an election the energy can can it's is really self-contained once the election's over all of that energy dissipates and it is hard to sort of build lasting political movements out of um a single campaign or candidate so um I think it's less about um uh, firing shots, uh, as it is about, you know, wanting to, to encourage, um, a, a real grassroots politics of a kind that is, um, really hard to do, um, and not necessarily something that we've seen in America recently, but is incredibly important. And uh, I think for me, it's been something that's been very influential in how I think about American politics today is, um, the sociologist Ida Stockpal uh, has this point um, that um, America used to have a whole panoply of membership organizations with local chapters uh, that were very important in sort of projecting people's power onto the national stage, and that those organizations have largely um, disappeared and be, been replaced by email lists. And that's a kind of uh, deadening of our democracy. And this is something that really interests Scott Paul about the Tea Party movement is, you know, she went out and did ethnographies of Tea Party groups. And, and she points out that, like, you know, of course, there was a ton of astroturf in that movement and a ton of billionaire money, but there were also people who, you know, were inspired by their horror at Obama to really connect with pe like-minded people on a local level and meet regularly and figure out what they were gonna do about it. And that's really been too rare in American politics for my whole lifetime. I think what we're seeing, not only on the left, but, you know, on the whole democratic liberal left spectrum uh, in the past couple of years, is people recognizing that these sort of broader DC-based institutions have failed them and deciding that they need to get together and figure it out for themselves. And I see that as a hugely positive and hopeful development. A quick note, that book is The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism, I believe, and uh, it is very good book. I would also just add, as long as we're insulting other organizations, I, feel like <laughs> I, I don't want to claim for, for DSA that it has sort of in, invented um, this idea of sort of a organization-based movement-grounded electoral strategy. I think there are a couple of groups around the country that we're really taking a lot of inspiration from that did the same sort of initially municipally focused, um, you know, movement grounded politics. Uh, uh, groups like New Haven Rising, which is very grounded in the labor movement in New Haven and the Richmond Progressive Alliance, which sort of uh, has had a long series of successes by 
holding an organization together and running slates over and over again instead of sort of having the electoral strategy orbit around candidates. Um, and of course, Cooperation Jackson um, are great examples of, of this kind of work. I think our hope in DSA is to spread the capacity to do that work and, or sorry, our hope, Renee's and my hope, um, <laughs> that of some people in DSA is to spread the sort of skills and strategy uh, that oriented those movements through our chapters. Um, and I think, uh, uh, oh, and of course the Vermont uh, Progressive Party, Party. Yeah. which I think to me, the Vermont Progressive Party is so, so inspiring because um, no one would have thought in the early 80s that like the really key like to American politics was to want to win a mayor's election in Burlington, Vermont, right? But I think what what we've seen there is that winning those elections and sort of building a, a group of politicized people and candidates there um, really wound up being um, both tremendously powerful in shaping Vermont politics and also ultimately positioned um, a senator from Vermont to run an incredibly sort of uh, inspiring uh, mm -hmm. presidential campaign that reshaped American politics in a lot of ways. So I think um, there is, it is a very long haul that takes you from the municipal and the state legislative left level to changing American politics, but we've got to start somewhere. And I think, uh, I think the local and state level is the place to start. Yeah, I would just say, I think it's not merely that you have to start somewhere, but that is where you have to start. That in order to sort of position the people who are gonna eventually run for the bigger seats to have the political buy-in from the community where you can get the win numbers you need for a larger seat, you you have to start by, um, you know, with, with what you can do and effectively do. Uh, I'm surprised that, Michael, that you did not take the opportunity to refer to Bernie Sanders by his full name, Bernie Sanders, the most popular politician in America. <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna... And we are going to talk uh, uh, quite a bit further about the most popular politician in America in a few minutes. Uh, quick aside to listeners, uh, Michael mentioned Jackson, Mississippi, and shortly there will be an interview posted uh, between myself and Jackson Mayor Chakwantar Lumumba that uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I anticipate that it'll be super interesting uh, along a lot of the same lines we were discussing on this episode, I want to ask about two other organizations that that listeners might be thinking about and that we haven't mentioned yet. One one group that was conspicuously unmentioned in the strategy document is the Working Families Party. And I'm guessing that the reason for that is because their story has some complexities and perhaps there's disagreement with India, say, over how to view them. Why weren't they mentioned? And, and what's your take? There is a lot of disagreement within DSA about how to see the Working Families Party, particular in the New York City chapter that Renee and I are, are from. Um, my personal perspective is that I, I think Working Families Party is a fantastic project and really inspiring, has really um, drawn New York politics to the left. I think um, the 
idea and inspiration behind Working Families Party was that um, the progressive wing of the labor movement needed to unite and come to a unified electoral strategy or uh, instead of uh, sort of being ruled one by one by the Democratic Party institutions. And I think, I, I actually think that's, like when people talk about the Working Families Party, they talk a lot about uh, fusion balloting. Um, I think that's so where the Working Families Party can have its own ballot line and maintain it by co-endorsing Democratic candidates. I don't really think that's the key to the WFP strategy. And I think you can see that as WFP begins to go national um, and sort of act in many other states that don't have fusion balloting. I think the key thing is thinking about how the progressive wing of the labor movement can have some autonomy from the Democrats in electoral politics and shape the, shape the Democrats instead of being shaped by them. Progressives who don't like the Working Families Party um, are probably thinking of their decision in 2014 to endorse Cuomo. The I'm I'm not the great Satan of Albany. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. I I, I keep forgetting the full names of these people. <laughs> um, I believe you referred to him as the devil last time. I did uh, several times. Um, yeah, and and it's lamentable that WFP endorsed Cuomo because he's the devil, right? Um, on the other hand, I I think it's very clear to all observers why they chose to do that. Um, it that uh, labor movement, you know, unions are responsible to their members. A lot of the members of WFP have. Um, sorry, the members of unions making up the WFP coalition have a lot at stake in state government. And from that perspective, it's uh, quite a difficult proposition for the WFP to run a protest candidate if it's going to uh, shape the fates of the contracts of, of hundreds of thousands of union members, you know? And of course, I wish they had not endorsed the devil um, and was extremely disappointed when they did. I would just say that um, that you can't see that as sort of a strategic mistake that Working Families Party made. Rather, you have to see it as um, a consequence of their strategy of, of working with unions as they are and not unions as leftists might wish them to be. A feature, not a bug. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, really smart. And, you know, the... Um, the other thing you can do is um, is of course operate a principled electoral organization uh, with uh, no need to make those kind of compromises. But you also don't have um, the money and the access to hundreds of thousands of working class people and the credibility that the actually existing labor movement brings. Right, so. You know, I, I certainly, BSA will not be endorsing the devil. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, the, um, I, I don't know whether an organization like DSA starting in 1998 could have as powerfully shaped New York state politics as working families did pursuing its strategy. So that's my perspective on that.
Yeah, I, th- I think we can simultaneously hold hold two two thoughts. One is that WFP has has clearly effectively effectuated uh, change towards the left in this country in many places, and at the same time, that it is good for there to be an organization to WFP's left that could never end up in a situation where, for structural reasons, they would end up endorsing the devil. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say I think our anti-Satanist position is going to be controversial uh, in DSA when it comes out. But um, <laughs> uh, not Andrew Cuomo, just uh, anti-Satan. Um, but um, I absolutely agree. I, I listened to your – I'm very bad with names, but I listened to the interview that you did with the, uh, one of the WFP folks. Joe Dinkin. And you'd asked him about DSA, and, and he sort of uh, basically, you know, was, was complimentary, but but implied that, you know, sometimes grownups have to make decisions about politics um, and and worried about our, our purity. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. I think there's a role, not with him, with you, that there's a role for, for, for both kinds of political um, actors and that it's all to the, to the good that... Um, there's uh, an institution that's that's um, corralling uh, power, progressive power within New York State, um, and an organization that's saying, you know, that doesn't go far enough. We need to be pushing further and further. Um, and I, I think both have their role. Both are important. And you know, for me, I'm, um, you know, after a, a a lifetime in the sort of um, not lifetime, but after a decade and a half in the, you know, nonprofit liberal, you know, political space, it's it's really gratifying to uh, be working with a bunch of people who are who are uninterested in compromising, but still interested in winning. Right on. Um, one group that is mentioned that the electoral strategy document takes a sort of wait and see approach to is our revolution, which formed out of the Bernie campaign. Um, what's your assessment of our revolution? And you can answer as though David Dualde won't be listening, though he very well might be. You know, I think that, that the R-Rev idea of having a bunch of affiliates, all of whom are sort of self-directed and, and doing their own work is, is good. Um, I think that as much uh, freedom as those affiliates get and as much support as they get in doing their own political work within their communities, that'll be really good. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they're... I don't know the exact um, background of it. I know that that there's um, some difficulties with sharing, with list sharing, right? That our rev has a great list, but they aren't able necessarily or don't share it with their locals, which um, uh, what I like about DSA is is um, that we, we, we know all of our members and <laughs> we can do outreach. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it really remains to be seen what kind of culture is going to develop um, you know, we've, uh, I think uh, the RRIB affiliates are all like, can be very different and the experience, um, of working with them or alongside them, um, in all the various places that, that DSA is working, uh, is, is different. I mean, some of the DSA locals are even RRIB affiliates, um, uh, you know, and other is they're, they're less close. I, I mean, I think it, it is, I think we took a wait and see approach for the very reason that it's not quite clear, um, how what it's going to sustain us i think that's right i think it's too soon to tell i think um there is a real need for organization that like like i'm very 
and we're very focused on the local and the state level, but I think there is a real need after the Sanders campaign for an organization that, um, how, how do I want to put this, maybe makes the left progressive democratic movement visible to itself and organizes it um, and provides the support across the country. Um, but I, I think my sense is that there are some our revolution locals that are doing a fantastic job of that and some less so. So I think we'll, I think much like DSA, it's very much a nascent organization. Um, and we'll see uh, what we're all doing in five years. Speaking of Bernie, the, the strategy document unsurprisingly refers back to the 2016 campaign a couple of times. Uh, the, the Bernie candidacy, arguably more than anything else, is responsible for DSA's explosive growth, along with a lot of other things happening on the left right now. What does the Bernie campaign teach us in retrospect about how socialists should be thinking about electoral politics? I should mention that I worked for the the Bernie campaign as the National Voter Protection Director in the last couple of months. Um, I think that it it I think one of the really um, amazing things about the Bernie campaign is that the number one um, statistically significant factor for being a Bernie supporter was that it was your first time voting and not their first time voting like you were 18, but just your first time voting overall more than youth. Um, So that there is really an ability to draw people into the political process, whether it's the political process as a whole or the Democratic nominating process. Or uh, just getting them to to really think, okay, if there's a candidate who is going to be speaking to these really fundamental issues um, economically, socially, that affect me, my family, my community, that even if I've ordinarily been skeptical of politics, that there's a a thirst and a hunger for that kind of authentic um, articulation of, of working class values that uh, that can be um, harnessed, um, and and I think that that was um, incredibly inspiring to see. And, uh, I think that's, you know, that, 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 that existed, that there is that sort of, if not silent majority or, or plurality, at least, uh, a, a silent, really big group of people, um, who are, who are hungry for that, I think, uh, is, is, I think one of the, the great lessons of it. I think a, a very important thing, this seems obvious maybe, but a very important thing about the Sanders campaign is that he did pretty well. And there was a moment when some of us thought that he could win. And uh, even when he lost, the the aftertaste of that loss was the sense that maybe someday in our lifetimes, there could be... Uh, it was that night in, was it Wisconsin? Michigan. Michigan, Michigan yeah, that, is, what, is what he won. Yeah, that that yeah. night, yeah, that was a very uh, crazy night. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I, I I cried, and I don't think I'm the only one. I cried when Bernie Sanders won the Michigan primary, um, and I think something that's very easy for socialists to forget, um, because our political ambitions range so far from what we see in front of us, is that. Um, the challenge when you're trying to politicize people is not to convince them that it would be nice if there were universal health care someday, 
or that it would be nice if their college was free. The challenge is to convince them that that someday could happen and that it could happen through their work and their organizing. Um, I think some people on the left think it's a really good idea to uh, have obviously losing campaigns, you know, like um, distant third party challenges that get 4% because they say, oh, it can help spread your message or something. Um, I really disagree with that. I think that the message most people get from a, four, you know, a loss with four or five percent of the vote is um, this might be a nice idea in theory, but there's it's far away. There's nothing we can do about it. There's no point in being politically active. Um, I think for many young people on the left, the Bernie Sanders campaign was the first thing that gave them just a slight taste of what it might be like to win. And for many, many people, that was the most politicizing event of their lives. Um, I think, yeah, that that's the lesson to learn. And for me, I, I agree entirely. And as someone who got involved in the the radical left in the, in the late 90s as a teenager, from then until pretty recently, I think the pervasive assumption on the radical left is that we would be in a permanently critical dissident posture, and the the Bernie campaign's success, even though it ultimately failed to win, its success showed me and I think many others for the first time that we could win in our lifetimes and even kind of soon in our lifetimes and reminded us that the point was to win and to govern. Yep. Yep. So speaking of the let's run a third party candidate that gets protest candidacy that wins 3% of the the vote, I want to I want to ask about the ballot line question. <laughs> In the strategy document, you write, discussion of independence from the Democrats tends to revolve around the question of the ballot line, but it shouldn't. Most party power rests not in ballot access as such, but in the network of consultants, politicos, lawyers, and party functionaries who control the means of electioneering in each state. Ultimately, it is not the name of the party under which a candidate runs that governs their decision while in office— but the material conditions that inform the composition and capacity of the groups that form their coalition. Uh, very smart materialist analysis that I agree with entirely. Um, but, but the document also states, there are cases where independent ballot access is made very difficult and where socialist candidates may seek to run on the Democratic ballot line. While we should be critical of that decision, there are some special cases where this might constitute a strategic decision. I counted, I don't know, there's like half a dozen caveats in those two sentences. Given the the first part, the analysis of the ballot line, I was surprised that the electoral strategy document then reserves running socialists on the Democratic Party ballot line, which is exactly what Bernie Sanders did, that it reserves that for special cases that might constitute a strategic decision. It, it, explain this uh, tension between the two. We didn't write the second one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let me tell you something about politics. <laughs> <laughs> politics is about compromise. <laughs> the Refoundation uh, Caucus, the far left caucus of DSA, had put together a very long, um, you know, 
uh, I didn't personally agree with it, but certainly everyone put a lot of work into it and was thoughtful about it. A strategy document that was much more of the, um, you know, let's form a third party and convince Bernie to run on a people's party platform in, in 2020 and, and, and that kind of um, view of the, of the electoral framework. Um, and uh, one of the NPC members who's part of um, ReFoundation uh, sort of put together a series of amendments um, that reflected uh, sort of a compromise position between the uh, hard lines of ReFoundation and our document, and those were enacted and, and integrated. Hi, this is Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, The Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you, and back to the show. Well, this is a good opportunity, I think, to talk a little bit more about the ballot line question. If you could both unpack a little uh, part one of, of what I read there. You know, I think for, for us, given the structure of American politics, and particularly the prevalence of first-past-the-post um, single-member districts, uh, you're often going to be in a situation where a third party candidacy is deeply unlikely to prevail um, and may even uh, act as a spoiler. Whereas to get the Democratic nomination, you need to win sort of 50 percent of 50 percent and given turnout rates much, much lower. So you can much more easily mount a successful um, left Democratic primary challenge than you can a third party candidacy. And I think that um, for us, I mean, you know, I certainly think that there are people within the Democratic Party who are, I mean, if not the the uh, majority, um, you know, deeply corrupt and not about, you know, working class power, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I don't think they're that way because they're Democrats. I don't think that like Democrats have some sort of taint to them and only the purity of a third party candidacy is is, is worth doing. I think Democrats are corrupted by the material conditions of running for office, right? That they need money and the people with money are the moneyed interests, right? So if you can sort of sneak in and, and take the party line, um, why wouldn't you? Like there's nothing, you don't 
once you there's nothing you have to do that um that taints you about running as a democrat if you don't want it to american political um, parties are inherently very very little they as their history of them being such different parties over the years i think makes abundantly clear which is a weakness in terms of building like a socialist party in the u.s for example but it's also an opportunity to just steal their ballot line when it's useful absolutely and so i think um for us uh meaning renee not meaning dsa yes sorry um i i think that that we are as skeptical of the majority of, of people who run with a D behind their names um, as anybody, but that's not really the question. The question is how can you most effectively build electoral power? And in many, if it, indeed the vast majority of places in the United States, that's going to be by winning Democratic primaries um, and getting your candidate that ballot line, which may mean they'll cruise to an easy or at least have an easier shot at victory in the general. And so why you would refuse to do that um, uh, out of some, you know, I mean, I do think that's purity politics in the in the sort of derogatory way that people mean it, where you're sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face, where there's nothing intrinsically corrupting about that label um what's corrupting is the whole set of of other things that go along with it relying on the party to get elected relying on the party for money relying on um people with money for money uh you know all of those things and it's Mm -hmm. it's particularly odd in dsa respectfully to uh those listeners who hold this view because uh the view of ballot line purism because it it can't be squared with in my opinion pretty like accurate obvious and honest assessment of of the bernie 2016 campaign which was for the democratic primary i mean that's what it was (laughs) i think most people understand pretty well that um it's uh for a number of reasons, some of which are simple and some of which are complicated, it's enormously uh, difficult to the point of being a non-starter at this at this point and for the foreseeable future to win um, to win elections off a major party line in a in a partisan race. Um, I think that people who pursue um, Third party strategies do not think that winning elections is the key. They think um, presenting an alternative and sort of mobilizing people around an alternative is the key. And you can do that even better by sort of branding yourself as clearly as possible to be opposed to the to the order of things by, you know, you know, it's a it's a branding question from that perspective. I personally think that it's uh, that the only way to run a sustainable electoral strategy is by winning elections. Um, and occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> uh, as, as occasionally as often. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, but, as, possi- um, as occasionally as and possible. I, and right. I think really, I think often the um, the debate about about ballot lines is a stocking horse or sort of a erroneous replacement for the debate about whether holding elected office is valuable or not. Um, so uh, so that's really where I think the disagreement lies more than anything else. Before we uh, get tired as um, incorrigible reformists, it also is important to run people in third part as third parties as non-Democrats when possible, because it is a hideously corrupt institution, right? 
I, I do think it's a, it's great to run people in, in different ways where the sort of structure of the local elections will, um, will bear it. Right. Like I think places like Seattle and, and, um, Minneapolis and, and other places where there are nonpartisan, um, you know, ranked, uh, uh, choice voting um, city council races like that seems like the perfect place to try that because you you really you aren't facing the same kind of structural concerns of um, you know it being of the of the first past the post um, single member districts where you're gonna end up with a two party monopoly you know because of those structural reasons um, so for me that's that's where you should be thinking about those kinds of alternative of places. Uh, alternative parties, alternative ways of doing it. Um, and I think that, yeah, sorry, that was not articulate, but that's, that's my view. <laughs> Michael. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think Renee and I were talking recently about um, socialist alternatives, electoral strategy, which I think in a lot of ways, um, the election of Shama Sawant is like a really inspiring, powerful example Um and um, and DSA endorsed a socialist alternative candidate um, in 2017, Ginger Jetson. Jensen, sorry. Um, in Minneapolis, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, like, I think those are great campaigns that do, do the electoral thing we're talking about of going local, organizing around an issue, and making the issue campaign and the electoral campaign work together. I think the thing that I've never heard socialist alternative people say, but that's obviously their strategy, is um, they look for municipal elections with nonpartisan balloting and ver various um, non nonpartisan or non-first-past-the-post um, systems. And, you know, I think that is a really good thing to do there. And the rest of us living in hyper-partisan balloting systems need to pursue the issue campaign to electoral strategy, but abandon the ballot line strategy, because as, as I think they know, it's at this stage unworkable outside of those places. One thing that the, the document highlights that's a way to maintain a more radical posture and independence from the Democratic Party as an institution while seizing their ballot line is to run as as open socialists. Why is that important beyond um, beyond that? It is a shorthand way of getting candidates to say they agree with socialist policy priorities. So I'm a little bit agnostic on this. Like, I think that um what's more important to me is where the candidate lies on the issues that are sort of confronting the community. And, you know, while I think it's certainly very easy to demand in New York, like I could see other places where, uh, if that law, if that, um, word is going to be the difference between being able to support like a really fantastic candidate who fits in all the other sort of ticks off all of the other strategy and policy boxes, but doesn't want to use this word. I I'm sort of agnostic on that. Um, but in New York, I think, um, one, I think it's really important to get buy-in from other folks within DSA, right? Like, this is something that's clearly very important to people. Um, just this week, so we're considering a couple of different candidates, and one of them um, in their questionnaire did not 
uh, identify it as a as a socialist. And literally, a three hundred comment thread got started of about of people responding to the idea that we were even considering endorsing a candidate who didn't use the word. And, you know, the the answer is that, you know, we didn't want to like sort of cut off democratic consideration of the candidates. We weren't going to say, oh, you didn't use the shibboleth, therefore you don't get to go before the um, the uh, uh, members of the electoral working group. But it's, it's a word that's clearly very important to people within DSA to guarantee that our electoral work is really focused on the wider issues rather than just being about endorsing the leftmost of the candidate in any particular race. And I think people are really willing to show up um, for people who are willing to use that word and less so for people who aren't. Um, I do think in places like New York, it is a handy way to distinguish between people who are seeking your endorsement because they want a lot of um, free volunteers um, and people who are really going to be accountable to you and dedicated to your mission and work with DSA rather than trying to get what they can out of DSA. I would add to that that I I think it reflects a certain boldness on the candidate's part that exactly should be refreshing to people who are considering supporting them. And two, I think in the case of Bernie Sanders, who who openly identified as a as a democratic socialist, even though I think he's more of a left social democrat, but whatever, I think it's also a way to communicate uh, for someone to communicate that they are someone with with ideological and political and activist roots on the radical left and not an opportunist moving as much as we might appreciate them moving on these issues, moving from the center and just picking from the salad bar a few policy priorities of the left. And it's, it's also a way to, to that there's, there's no going back from it. Um, You know, it's, (laughs) it's like, you know, you could say, oh, I supported this policy for this reason. But once you say you're a socialist, like you're not you're not getting back into the embrace of the DLC, you know. Well, you can be David Horowitz and start front page mag. Yes. But but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's I think that's a whole other conversation about um, the funding available for for conservative media. Mm hmm. A lot of DSA and and certainly us here in New York, we operate in big Democratic controlled blue cities that are despite being controlled by the most progressive democrats you could you could dream of are still in the midst of massive gentrification are still um places where grinding poverty sits right next to extreme wealth are still places where people get shot by the police all the time i think it's very important to all of us that uh we're uh not going to keep electing those people that we're looking for something radically different from the present. And I think that's what socialist communicates. It's what socialist communicates and hopefully what socialism is about. Uh, and the two, the con- <laughs> and, and the consonants between the two is the, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the yeah, good I've, piece there. I, if you, if you do too much electoral politics, you think of everything in terms of messaging. I think what <laughs> Renee and I both just did was we were like, why, why is socialist a good word? Well, <laughs> It because they don't like capitalism because capitalism is bad. Yes, that's why we like yeah. the word socialism. I mean, all that said, I, I, I think that um, it is important to talk about it in terms of messaging because um, what politicians say to you when they're trying to get elected are it, it, it's not a it's not a blood oath, right? And so, what are the ways in which this word? is powerful in a way that other words said by people running for office aren't. 
So for me, I, I, I refuse to apologize for considering it in a messaging terms. <laughs> this episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. It's a Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. The powerful wave of rage fueling Me Too has finally refocused public attention on sexual harassment and sexual violence and starkly posed questions of power, of feminism, and of politics. How do we define violence? How do we discuss and experience sex? Who gets to tell stories of sexual assault? And who gets to be heard? How impoverished is our language for describing the intersection of power, desire, and violence? What is the relationship between individual struggles and collective protest? What do we do with the abusers? In short, this moment has recalled a much older question. How do we get free? In this collection of new and previously published writings, leading activists, feminists, scholars, and writers describe the shape of the problem, chart the forms refusal has taken, and outline possible solutions. Importantly, they also describe the longer histories of organizing against sexual violence that the Me Too moment obscures among working women, women of color, undocumented women, imprisoned women, poor women, among those who don't conform to traditional gender roles, and discern from those practices a freedom that is more than notional, but embodied and uncompromising. Contributors to this book include Tarana Burke and Elizabeth Aditiba, Lauren Berlant, T.D. Bhattacharya, Stephanie Kuntz, Melissa Jira Grant, Laura Kipnis, Gabriel Thompson, Larissa Pham, Alex Press, Jane Ward, and Tarian L. Williamson. Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, Violence, Hashtag Me Too. A Verso report available as a free ebook that you can find at versobooks.com. I want to close out by talking about a little more about New York politics since you both are New York DSA people. You mentioned the Jabari Brisport uh, campaign and how it was connected to the, this housing uh, or this development struggle. He didn't win, um, but can you say a little bit more about how the campaign played out and looking back on it, what what your assessment is? Despite Renee's and my skepticism of third-party efforts, this actually was a DSA third-party um, electoral effort against a Democratic incumbent. Um, and the circumstances, as I said earlier, were that there was this enormous development struggle that was very politicizing in a community that is experiencing rapid gentrification. Um, and we um, and and we were ran, running this race very much in that context, and that was the central issue. That's what we talked to people about on the doors. So one thing about the experience of running that election was that um, we, there was a very smooth continuity between organizing around the issue and organizing around the candidate. We were talking to people about the same exact things. Those things were directly relevant to their lives. You know, they could walk by the building every day that was going to be turned into condos. Um, and we got a really solid response from people. Um, 
and in fact, such a great response. And and we we saw it. Jabari was running on the Green Party ballot line. We also saw it and received a socialist ballot line. So Jabari was on the ballot under the Green and the socialist lines. Um, and we, depending on your perspective, ultimately did either very well or very badly. Um, very badly means we got 30% of the vote. Very well means we got 30% of the vote on the green and socialist ballot lines, right? Um, which was uh, quite a bit better than any Green Party candidate had ever done in New York City history and was uh, one of the strongest, one of the two strongest left electoral challenges off the Democratic line in the past 30 years. Um, so, uh, so we felt that it was a show of force and I think others um, who follow city politics the same way also felt that way. And of course, DSA um, has not stopped doing activism in that community or in Crown Heights Week. We are now engaged in a tenant organizing uh, struggle against abusive landlords in that same district. So the relationships um, and the skills we built are still with us. So in that sense, I'm not that depressed that we lost, but um, the fact is we lost the, the election and the, um, and the development project we were fighting against will go through. Um, so I think I don't want to put lipstick on the pig here. Um, <laughs> um, it, it would have been better if we won. There was also another big city council race that did surprisingly, or not surprisingly, did remarkably well, but also didn't win. Can you tell me about that? So the Cotterelia team campaign was, um, uh, a, it was a fight in a Democratic primary. Um, so, uh, and this has been covered on a, another podcast. If folks listen to Radio Lab, they can hear all about Cotterelli team. But um, uh, he was—he's a, a Lutheran uh, minister in uh, 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 Bay Ridge, in Brooklyn, and has you know served um, the uh, Arabic Christian community there for uh, over twenty years, and um, is a community leader and. The Bay Ridge is one of the places where there's a very large um, Muslim um, and Arabic uh, population in the city. And so uh, it was it was um, uh, he ran as a, you know, someone coming out of that community um, and wanting to speak up for that community, but also as someone who was really committed to social justice. He had um, uh, uh, been um, uh, held as a uh, prisoner by the IDF and tortured by them as a young man and, and came out of this uh, very sort of uh, uh, long Christian left tradition. And so um, there was, uh, so, you know, given the incumbency advantage, um, our, our, we were looking for candidates, you know, who were in um, uh, districts where there was a, a um, uh, Sorry, where there's a retiring incumbent or someone who is no longer going to, who's not going to be running. So it'd be an open seat. And so uh, we were looking uh, for folks in that community and um, uh, met with him and were just really impressed with him. And um, he's someone where I don't know that he would necessarily, before the DSA experience, have identified as a socialist, but he joined DSA, he identified as a socialist. 
Uh, and it ended up being a really interesting synergy in the community because um, that district is one of the few that went for um, Bernie or went the highest for Bernie in the city. Uh, it was a very um, strong sort of Bernie um, district. So it, it it's sort of the in many ways, like exactly the kind of district that we're looking for, where as uh, was Dearborn, our, as was Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, you know, the I actually remember I was uh, in the um, uh, headquarters the night of the New York primary, and and someone was pointing out to me uh, all of Bay Ridge, and they went, "That's that's the APAC speech. We got that right there." Where <laughs> 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 Bernie expressed some skepticism about U.S. support of Israel, right? Like not actually like anywhere near calling for um, a just outcome, but uh, but it, but just some skepticism. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, it was a really good combination of a district and a candidate and a place where we had some DSA presence, but it wasn't like our biggest or most active chapter. And so uh, I think it was a really interesting experience for all of us. There's a lot of stuff that went really well and a lot of things where we were like, wow, we could do this better next time. Like we ran our own separate canvases, which was great in terms of the things we talked about in terms of developing expertise. You know, I think like a whole bunch of people learned how to like cut turf and use van and, and, you know, what persuasion looks like and what a persuasion script versus the GOTV script looks like and all those different things. And, um, Use all the jargon that makes you sound like you know stuff, even when you don't. Um, and um, uh, you know, really developed leadership. But it also meant that we weren't working with that community uh, as as closely as we would want. And so during GOTV, we ran an integrated field program and really got to know folks. And and so we were you know trying to figure out for the next time of, of ways to do that better. And Cotter lost by about three hundred votes. Um, wow. So. It was yeah, but you know, out of out of a couple thousand, it wasn't a very um, it's not a very big turnout race. But what was true of both um, Cotter's race and Jabari's race is that the districts they ran in had one of the highest, if not the highest, voter turnout citywide in that election. Right, that like our being there and and participating in those races and and building turnout like really upped the turnout, made those very competitive races. And so, you know, obviously. We would prefer to win. Like I think um, Michael and I like are definitely come like dedicated to the proposition that we should be trying to actually win races and not just um, lose nobly all the time. But they were very noble losses in terms of um, creating connections to the community, in terms of uh, developing leadership within DSA, in terms of building our 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 capacity, and in terms of of. Um, really establishing ourselves as like a political force within the city. Like pe- there are definitely like a lot of people who are coming and asking for us to to meet with them or or help them or give them an endorsement. Um, you know, not just sort of like the the folks that we're going out and and trying to talk to and recruit. On the New York question, obviously, actress Cynthia Nixon is challenging <laughs> uh, Governor Great Satan. Are you a little bit? like grudgingly pleased with Nixon, moderately pleased or very pleased? What, how should people think about Cynthia Nixon or is it too early to tell? I would say this. I'm moderately pleased with Cynthia Nixon as a candidate and fucking delighted that someone is running. Um, I think that given that Cuomo has essentially been selling off the powers of the state to people in exchange for a $30 million war chest and given that the rent stabilization laws here in New York are up for renewal 
next year and that that will really determine whether New York continues on its path of real estate ethnic cleansing or pulls back from it. I think it's really, really both vital that we find um, that we have a progressive challenger to Cuomo and um, and very hard to find someone who's willing to run in those in those circumstances. I think um, most New York Democrats are uh, cowards who can see a losing proposition when they when when they uh, can tell a losing proposition when they see one and we're not willing to step up. So I'm glad we found someone to step up. Now, that said, I think that we'll, we really have to wait and see whether Cynthia Nixon uh, can pull it off and run a credible campaign. Um, I think she's made some very, very serious missteps in terms of how she talks about the New York labor movement. Um, she was critical- The, the transit the, workers recently. Yeah, critical of the transit workers in a way that sort of blamed them for uh, the problems with the subways. And the person you should be blaming for the problems with the subways is Andrew Cuomo. Um, and conveniently it, enough, you're running against him. So, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, that's, that's the kind of sort of, um, you know, political mistake and sub substantive mistake that you're, that it's not surprising to see from a first time candidate. Um, at the same time, I, I really think it's vital to put pressure on Cuomo, destroy his presidential ambitions, cause him to lose Amen. sleep every day. So, so, you know, I think that that is a really exciting campaign, but Jumani should have run. Jumani uh, <laughs> Williams, who's running for Lieutenant governor this year uh, is a wonderful um, black progressive politician um, who uh, has ha occasionally had problematic views on social issues, absolutely, but I think that he's gotten his head right on that and he'd be a strong challenger. I think something many people don't understand about New York politics is that um, that you, first of all, it's a 60-40 blue state where whoever wins the primary will win the general election. And second of all, the Democratic primary is won and lost in Brooklyn. There's no like Zephyr Teach outrun won practically every county upstate, and she still lost quite badly. The place you have to do well is Brooklyn, and I think um, I think the question for Cynthia Nixon will be: Is she able to make inroads in communities of color in Brooklyn? Um, so we'll see about that. Yeah, I would just say like I think that there's a a quality to New York politics that I, that. I'm sure it exists other places, which is that if you're, you know, a moderately successful democratic politician, you're never going to have to worry about not having a job. And so there's less like, um, like people are unwilling to risk sort of stepping out of turn. Like, I don't think the party is that powerful in terms of what they could sort of bring to bear on anybody who, who sort of bucked the system. But I do think that there's a sort of powerful, like, um, why rock the boat if you're going to succeed, right? Like you might see in a, in a more purple state, why not take a, you know, if you're like Randy Bryce, why not try to knock off Paul Ryan, right? It's not like you have a, a, a safe seat that you ascend to and will just keep for the next 30 years as long as, you know, your corruption stays on the right side of the law, right? It's, 
Um, and so I actually don't know that it is a losing proposition, right? I think that the, um, I'm going to forget his name, but the guy who ran as a Democrat against Bloomberg that everyone's like, oh, he's never going to win. And then he came within a shockingly small amount of votes, right? That if they'd actually bothered to like run a campaign that could have beaten Bloomberg. Um, I think that there was that quality to a lot of these races. Like, I don't think that, that, um, like it is one and lost in Brooklyn. And like, I think a lot of people in Brooklyn take the subway and <laughs> are as a result, very angry right now. Mm-hmm. What else is on the New York political agenda for DSA? Anything coming up besides the governor's race, which I anticipate New York DSA probably won't have a direct stake in. We are looking at a, at a number of, um, candidates mostly in um the democratic primaries um the federal democratic primaries and the and the um fall democratic primaries for the for the state positions but um we do not we don't have anybody who's formally endorsed yet um just because of our structure you have to go through about five different votes to get endorsed which you know we're Hell glad yeah. Glad for because it means that you know you have you know democratic accountability and everyone's sort of bought in by the time the formal endorsement happens and it, we just we like it so uh, but the upshot of that is that one um, we don't have anyone formally endorsed yet and two it would be sort of deeply inappropriate for us in leadership to be like well we're going to get this guy endorsed because that's not how it works sure sure my last question is something I'm going to start asking in all relevant interviews, which is the the 2020 question. Um, I really wish Bernie were 10 years younger. I really wish that there was someone just as good and uh, with the same potential as he has who could run. Um, But both of those things are not realities. And the Democratic the left bench of people who could possibly run for the, in the democratic primary is, is shit, um, which is a problem. Um, so am I correct that at this moment, it looks like it definitely has to be Bernie 2020. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I, I also agree with that. I think it's really stri- striking evidence of what a, what a dead zone of, of hucksters and, and thieves. <laughs> <laughs> became in the wake of the Reagan revolution that there's just no one else with the credibility with the sort of progressive credibility to unite people the way that Sanders did and I think it speaks to the importance of of building up candidates from the grassroots level in the state and local offices but I just don't see who else could do it and uh life expectancy gets longer every year so he looks very healthy he does look very healthy vital he works a lot he works a lot um i think the closest of 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 someone else who could potentially do it is warren but i feel like warren is definitely somebody who uh was and and would be a republican in a less benighted era yeah Um, she she doesn't have like an ideological i i mean i like her for a democrat so much yes which i love which i love but that's like her politics and yeah i i'm not saying i i'm just saying it's the closest but yeah oh yeah i oh, know it is it, which is telling that she's the she's the closest and i suspect she might be a vp pick for bernie um oh, yeah. That'd be... yeah i i think something people miss about the warren issue is like there's a really big difference between a sort of 
trust busting, anti-big business, maybe pro-small business kind of politics that's oriented that way. And like, a, you know, new, new deal, like social democratic settlement, um, like politics, which is, I think, what Bernie is advancing. And I think, you know, the former is great, but the latter is what we really, really need in this country and have for many years. So that's even deserve and even deserve. And that's something that's, I think, substantively what is meant by the idea of political revolution. It's I think it's often treated as just a slogan, but I think it's an intentional way to convey just that. Yep. Um, Michael Knukin and Renee Parody, thank you both so much for coming on the very first time ever, the first time all of us have ever spoken to each other at the same time. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a great evening. Renee Parody is a civil rights and criminal defense lawyer and was the National Voter Protection Director for Bernie 2016. Michael Kanukin is a writer, researcher, and activist in New York City, and both are involved in all matter of DSA electoral activities. Michael is also a sharp and popular commentator on the website Facebook.com. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class, to win the battle of democracy, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, please log in and leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling your friends and family about our show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation running smoothly. Even a few bucks is a big help. <laughs>